The United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP28, will feature a day of health. The first time the conference has ever devoted an entire day to this topic, organizers say climate change poses an imminent and severe threat to human health, affecting nearly half of the world's population today, not in some distant future. We are going to have to realize that health is as fundamental as food and water to our daily lives. We're going to need policymakers and leaders to realize that. And that's incumbent on every single listener on this channel and all of us to start to make that call to action and to realize we deserve better. Our guest is Dr. Vanessa Carey, the World Health Organization Director General, Special Envoy for Climate Change and Health. She is the first person to ever hold this role. For me, the fact that health is an important part of this discussion, I think is an incredible moment for us to understand how climate change is impacting us really real ways individually. I mean, if you think about it, asthma, incidences of asthma attacks and visits to the hospital are going up in the setting of climate change and air pollution. So people are finding themselves having a harder time breathing or their children and they're having to go to the emergency room more often. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, welcome, Dr. Carey, to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's really an honor to join you and your audience today. Oh, that's great. You know, let's start by asking you to explain the purpose and goals of COP28 and the Day of Health, which is set for December 3rd. Um, thank you for the question. I, You know, the COP conference is really, um, it has several really core goals. And it's to really bring people together from around the world and different nations who have different roles and, and, and responsibilities in what's happening in climate change to discuss how we take this moment forward and how we meet those climate change challenges. It's to negotiate what every country is going to commit to to help improve the problem. It's to negotiate how we fix um, the problem for countries that maybe don't have funding or resources or understanding of what's happening and the right, you know, or the capabilities uh, to measure the impacts of what's happening. And it's an opportunity to raise awareness about how climate change is impacting each of our lives in really real ways. You know, I think that for me as a doctor and a mother, um, you know, and and in the role that I've played in, in working to deliver healthcare to people who don't have it around the world, for me, the fact that health is an important part of this discussion, I think is an incredible moment for us to understand how climate change is impacting us really real ways individually. I mean, if you think about it, asthma, incidences of asthma attacks and visits to the hospital are going up in the setting of climate change and air pollution. So people are finding themselves having a harder time breathing or their children and they're having to go to the emergency room more often. We're seeing people have heart attacks more often. If you think about Phoenix, you know, Phoenix, Arizona had triple digits for over a month this year. And that isn't just hard to bear from a heat standpoint. That means for many people, you can't go to work. You can't earn your living. You can't put food on the table for your family or you're suffering trouble breathing or your heart or you know something else is happening that is making you sick so that you can't participate in your life. These are, you know, the way we're feeling climate change on a very personal level is through health. So having a first ever day dedicated to health at this big conference 
is an opportunity, I think, to really shift our focus and our conversation to prioritize making sure that we're taking care of people so that they can live their lives in all the ways that they want to and need to. Well, I appreciate very much uh, one of the aim statements for day, the day of health to, to do uh, what it calls construct resilient, equitable health systems capable of withstanding the impacts of climate change. Uh, you know, it's bold, it's clear, says what the goal is, and then we bump up against the realities of, so how much are we investing uh, in this kind of work? And I, I think the often cited statistic is only 0.5% of the world's financial aid goes to public health and climate change. So, you know, can we ask you, are you expecting any official actions or announcements coming out of this day uh, that demonstrates the muscle that uh, people are willing to put behind the health concerns with climate change? So, I mean, I think, um, yes, my hope is that we certainly start to see a really, really historic COP where we start to see some very deep and accelerated commitments to what needs to happen to protect all of our well-being and our health and to protect our long-term sustainability as countries, as communities, and as individuals. You know, number one is without question, we have got to move away from fossil fuel use. And I think that as I say that, I want to be careful. That doesn't mean you know, abandoning jobs or abandoning livelihoods. It's about being really thoughtful about what a transition looks like, creating new jobs and green energy for folks so that we can make the right transitions that ensure that we are protecting the air we breathe, the earth we live in, our long-term food sourcing, um, and that we're in water and all these things. Uh, but we have to have real thoughtful conversations, real and thoughtful conversations about what that looks like to reduce the harm, but also to protect people's jobs and livelihoods and well-being. And I think those conversations can happen coming out of this COP. I think certainly coming out of the health aspect of things, we can expect to see a number of things. One, we're asking countries to really think about how they can include health and metrics of health of their population and, and as part of their nationally determined contributions to climate change. So thinking about how countries can really include doing better in health outcomes and protecting human health um, and investments in strong health systems, meaning the hospitals, the services, the ability for people to get the, the services they need in health. And I think that we'll see an opportunity. Um, I think we'll see some real discussions about how that can be held up as a higher priority among countries. And I think the funding will follow too. There's a lot of very meaningful discussions happening right now about increasing the amount of funding available to protect health, either by reducing the fossil fuel use, by ensuring the health systems are actually better at producing services and not contributing to the environmental impact um, that we see, and that making sure that health systems are prepared to deal with the increase of disease that we're seeing from climate change. Because health systems here now and today, people, here and now and today are feeling that impact of climate change. When we talk about malaria being transmitted in the United States for the first time ever, mm -hmm. you know, from between states, when we're talking about uh, dengue and other diseases coming to the United States we haven't seen, we're seeing increases of tick-borne illnesses in the U.S. We're seeing 7 million people a year and around the globe die of air pollution. That's more than we saw throughout the entire COVID pandemic. So we know that we're gonna to have to prepare health systems. We're gonna to have to have the doctors, the nurses, the midwives available to care for patients. We're gonna have the medicines on the shelves, the vaccines available. We're gonna to have to have all those services intact around the world to meet the burdens from climate change. And that's gonna take more funding. That funding exists in the world. It's about mobilizing it and applying it in the right way. 
And I think you will see announcements about that as well. And I think that we will also really see a very strong commitment from countries around the world to recognize how extreme weather, rising heat, and the impacts of climate change are impacting health that will help drive countries to make better policies that protect our individual and collective well-being from a health standpoint. Um, and you know, and I, I think we'll see all of that coming out of this COP. I think the question becomes so candidly, not just what do we hear at COP, but what is every single action step and the accountability and the actual change we see afterwards. So not that I'm not excited for this moment, but I think the real moment for me is gonna be when everybody leaves this conference, how are we actually accelerating what we're doing to meet this moment? And I think that is gonna be very important. And part of all of our jobs is to make sure that we see the action we need. Yeah, well, I wanna pull the thread a little on the uh, the opportunity it provides and, and the scope of the problem. This is the 28th conference of its kind, but hundreds of millions of people across the globe are experiencing the impact on uh, climate change, both affecting their physical and mental health. And obviously, as you've indicated, is having uh, an impact on the cost of the delivery system, uh, along with the impact that it's having, sort of the equity impact, uh, which is very troubling. I guess the question is, why is it taking so long uh, for health to earn such a prominent role in this discussion? Oh my gosh, that's a terrific question. And I think it's something I ask myself all the time. I've had a 20 year career working in closing health equity gaps and really recognizing the fact that we have all the resources, we have all the technology, we have incredible ability to do extraordinary things. I trained as an ICU physician. Mm -hmm. I know what it means to have somebody's heartbeat outside of their body, the lungs breathe outside of their body and to keep someone alive on the brink of their death in the United States. We can do these things, it's extraordinary. Yet you can drive down a road in one of our partner countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And you can go to a facility where there's not reliable electricity and where a baby dies because the electricity went off, not because anybody did anything wrong. The injustice of this is unfair. And this, by the way, is happening in the United States too. We have an epidemic of maternal mortality among black mothers in the United States that is founded in all sorts of social determinants of health and structural racism and all sorts of things. And I think the reality is that um, you know, we have not had honest discussions about the importance of health, but I want to be really clear. Health in and of itself is important because you need to have health to go to work, to care for your family, to go to school, to be able to live your life whole and fully and have a high quality of life. You cannot do that if you cannot breathe, if you have pain in your chest every time you walk, if you can't walk outside your door because it's 110 degrees for a month. You can't do those things. But what we also have to realize is that health actually is the difference between whether or not a family lives above or below the poverty line. Half of the households that have someone in the household with cancer will fall below the poverty line because, or will have catastrophic costs that they have to face and pay for out of pocket. We know that entire countries who are not as healthy don't have as much economic success or strength in the world. We also know there's gonna be 1.2 billion climate migrants right now that are gonna be moving around the earth, trying to escape the changes from climate change. We know that 132 million people are gonna be driven into poverty, a third of which come from the health impacts of this. Health has a very real role in gender equity, in our economics, in our security, in our day-to-day -day lives in a really real way. And we've never accepted that in full. But if the second we can embrace that and realize that investments in health actually become savings across all of these things, the conversation can change. 
I'd like to think that after a global pandemic and when we're looking down the barrel of the immense health changes from climate change, we can finally embrace the importance of our health in a way that we can change the conversation. And I know there's many of us that are really dedicated to that, but we are going to have to realize that health is as fundamental as food and water to our daily lives. We're gonna need policymakers and leaders to realize that. And that's incumbent on every single listener on this channel and all of us to start to make that call to action and to realize we deserve better than we have been you know, seeing in terms of how health has been deprioritized. I think there's a really real and extraordinary moment to change that conversation and know that I and my colleagues are really dedicated to making sure that health is front and center. Well, Dr. Kerry, you make as compelling a case as anyone could uh, for this work. Uh, the statistics back all of it up, the uh, 5 million extra deaths a year from fossil fuels. The question I guess I have for you is, what's your strategy? How are you organizing for uh, forgetting the investment piece, which is huge, pushing back against those who continue to rebut climate change data, say it's fear-mongering, say it's nonsense, uh, and to say nothing of the impact on health. I, I, I ask that in all seriousness because no one's gonna say it more clearly than you just did. So what else besides a clarity of message do you think is gonna move the needle and how are you and your colleagues gonna sort of advocate for that in these settings that you now find yourself in? So I think, you know, it's, I love that question. It's something I struggle with in really real ways. We live in a world today where you can get your information from so many different places and you can choose to listen to the quote unquote other side or opposing opinions, or you can choose to reject it. Um, and I think that COVID taught me a really powerful lesson that sometimes people just need to understand in very personal terms, how they're being impacted. And the question becomes, how do you communicate that piece? In some cases, when I was in the ICU, so I worked in the ICU during COVID as an ICU physician, and I had non-vaccinating people who didn't believe in it, who didn't believe COVID was real, come in sick, unable to breathe. And right before we put the breathing tube in, they would ask me for the vaccine. Right. And they would tell me they believe COVID was real and they wish they had known it. That is not a personal experience I would ever wish on anybody. But what struck me is that people really suddenly it became right. It became real. It was impacting them. And I think one of the things that I think matters, and this is communications though, is helping people to understand that when they're battening down for the tornado or they're fighting that extreme heat, or they're going to the emergency room from asthma for the third time, there's a reason behind that that has changed. Right. And it's, and that reason is real. And if they can, if we can help make those connections in ways that people can understand that they're being impacted by this. Hopefully we can find that common ground. Republicans now actually will acknowledge climate change is real. I think we're struggling to find the terminology that we become comfortable with, that we can have everybody want to move in the right direction. But that means that we're getting impacted by it, all of us, right? If we're all sort of suddenly acknowledging this. And so I think communications does matter. I think it's about also I'm a big believer that you have to listen to why people don't believe or to what it is that they're really wanting, needing to be heard. And I don't mean that in a hokey way. I have had the opportunity to live in many places around the world, to be in many communities that um, I did not grow up in that wouldn't be, you know, my natural community. 
And that experience has really taught me that I also have a lot to learn, even from the perspective that I'm at. And so I think that this is about, it's a long way of saying that we're all in this together. And it's about helping people to understand how they're impacted about it and understanding what kind of solutions feels right to them and thinking about where there's that overlap so we can take those first steps together towards the solution. But whether you like it or not, there is more extreme weather. Where you like it or not, more and more people are being impacted by climate change every day. You know, we're, we're expecting to see an uptick in disease from climate change of all kinds, and that is going to impact your lives. So the thing that I just would ask people is just to hold on to the question, what's different today than two years ago, three years ago, four years ago? And what really is driving that difference? And I think if it, you know, and, and I think that for a lot of folks, those traits, those Roots and traces in part can be to climate change, the threat to their homes, the fact that they don't have insurance anymore for certain storms, things like that. And I realize I'm a little all over the place in this answer. It's because you're asking one of the hardest questions. I'm struggling with it. And sure. I think that the strategy is about truth. The strategy is about perseverance. The strategy is about listening. And it's about understanding that even across our differences, we're in a pretty shared and existential experience. And how do we find the common way to reach each other within that? And I think that at least as a crux of a question is where we have to go. And I, um, and I welcome, you know, <laughs> anyone's opinions on how to do that better. Well, Dr. Kerry, you recently gave a speech where you talked about the power of healthcare workers to meet the climate change challenge kind of head on. And I know it can seem like an overwhelming topic, but I couldn't agree with you more from community to critical care, this massive worldwide workforce that shares a hopefully care and compassion for their fellow humans in the world in which they live is a vital part of the response. But take take a, a moment and tell us what do you think our frontline frontline colleagues uh, in healthcare can do? I mean, I think healthcare workers are the backbone of any healthcare system because healthcare is fundamentally a human-centered intervention. You, whether you are delivering that high-level care in an ICU, whether you are screening somebody for cancer that prevents them from having to have a complex surgery or you know and catches a cancer early, to whether you're holding their hand when they're dying so they're not alone, all of these things are human. And as I always say to people, you know, AI or artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence and technology are wonderful tools when paired with somebody who can leverage them appropriately. Because when a woman is hemorrhaging in childbirth, somebody has to hang that bag of blood. And as somebody who sees global health, we've trained over 34,000 doctors, nurses, and midwives over the last decade to be able to do just that. And in some of the places where we work that have had the highest maternal mortality rates in the world, literally 50 times the likelihood of dying in childbirth than here in the United States, um, you know, we've seen zero maternal deaths over five months mm. because wow. we invested in healthcare workers mm -hmm. who can be on the front line to diagnose, to manage, and to continue teaching others to do the same. So we will never have a strong healthcare system until we have those healthcare workers that are on the front lines. COVID's a great example. We had no medicine. We had no vaccine. You just had doctors, nurses, ancillary staff, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, people who showed up every day to do the best they could to bridge people through their acute illness. That's people. So I'm very proud that WHO has been working on an emergency public health workforce. They're supporting over 100 countries now to build out workforce in a meaningful way for the emergency public health response. 
If we're going to see rising burdens of disease from climate change, we're going to need more of a workforce to do that. But here's the beauty of a workforce. It's job creation. It's investment in a sector that's one of the fastest growing in the world and is a huge driver of GDP and economies. It becomes an opportunity for better care and for prevention. And it turns out that investments in the healthcare workforce actually are savings where you get a return on investment for every dollar spent. You can see two to four dollars of, of investment out or a nine to one if you include all the social benefits that happen, because a lot of these jobs are women who invest in their families. You know, I want to talk a little bit about being on the front line. You said earlier, if you uh, take a drive down uh, a road in Africa, you'll find a lot of different things. And you've taken that uh uh, drive down the road and been on the front lines because you're co-founder and CEO of Seed Global Health, a nonprofit organization focused on health system strengthening and transformation, really through long-term investment and training of health workforce, as you just discussed, all under your leadership. And this effort has helped improve health care for more than 73 million people. Uh, so impressive. Uh, maybe you could share lessons uh, of how you keep building on this success uh, with our listeners. Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's a team. We have an extraordinary team. We have a team that spans over seven countries that bring all of their depth of experience and perspective to bear. And I think that's part of the strength is that we lean into the diversity of the voices and the viewpoints and the different lenses that everybody on our team has which strengthens our work and make sure that we're having the honest conversations we need to have to do our work well. We, I know, I think that a seed has grown um, over the last decade and we have, we have had the reach that we've had. Um, one of the most powerful things we've learned is that our job is to be in support of local priorities. No matter what community you're working in, the communities know the best what the answers need to look like. They know what's been tried. They know what, what hasn't been tried. They know what is, culturally works within and they understand the nuances of, of what the resources can do. And I think that when you take that viewpoint of being an accompaniment, as my mentor Paul Farmer used to always say, which is the idea that you walk alongside someone together with someone to really be able to help achieve the goals, then we can all bring our different strengths to bear and we can all support each other through our respective weaknesses to kind of achieve what we need to achieve. Seed is also a deeply mission-driven organization with a team and partners who are all mission-driven, who all really just fundamentally believe that it is unacceptable in 2023 that there are two different standards of care in the world. It's very painful when I think about the fact that I started this in 2013, and I used to say in 2013, there should not be two standards of care in the world, and we're a decade later, and I feel like we're continuing to have to fight a pretty strong battle. And... But I also know it's possible because as I shared with some successes we've seen with seed, you can get to zero maternal deaths. You can get to places where patients are triaged with the same acuity, speed, and appropriate diagnosis in trauma in, in southwestern Uganda that you can see in the United States. None of this is impossible. It's a choice. We have to choose to make it happen as a collective, as a commu global community, those that have resources need to bring them to bear. Those that have the mission and the time need to come and show up. And I think we have to realize that as long as anybody is suffering, everybody's going to suffer. It sounds, you know, it sounds trite. It's really not. It's very fundamental. We should have learned that in COVID. Our failure to meet that moment in COVID meant that 90% of countries had disruptions of healthcare services. 
I'll guarantee you, you have listeners right now who has a parent dying because they were die or, you know, are sick because they were diagnosed too late because of disruption of services. Mm-hmm. That's unacceptable. We can do better. And I think that that's really been one of the things we know at seed that we can make a choice to close these healthcare gaps. And we're very committed to that. Um, but I by no means can take credit for this. It's been an extraordinary team effort where I learn every day with huge humility about how we do this work better and um, with accountability and to push others to, to help us scale it. Dr. Kerry, maybe uh, in these last few minutes, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a saying, the personal is political, the political is personal. Uh-oh. I note that your father is John Kerry, uh, currently serving as the first U.S. special presidential envoy for climate. I've uh, read your grandmother, I think, was an environmentalist or part of, you know, sort of came from that passion uh, in your family. Seems like it really is a family affair and I think really has to be a family affair around those tables, hopefully around Thanksgiving tables. This year, there were some discussions of climate, but Tell us, tell us your thoughts on how your, how did your family shape your passion for climate change and uh, improving this in the world? I am really privileged um, by both my parents. My mother actually was an advocate for mental health and depression at a time when nobody else spoke about it and was very vocal um, about what it meant with her own journey through depression. She wrote a book called You Are Not Alone, Voices of Hope and Experience for the Journey Through Depression. She and I think that was an extraordinary example of um, of, you know, leadership and tackling my father obviously has had a very long career in public service and being a very mission driven individual who's taught me without question that um, there's a lot to be optimistic about in this world. And we have to be global citizens and and to really never turn your back on someone in need. And he has said that to me in the most private of moments. And I've been very privileged to learn a huge amount from him. And my grandmother was indeed an environmentalist and a conservationist, and and she certainly embedded that in all of her children, which has come down multiple generations. Um, you know, and I'm I'm married to someone who's a service oriented human being, so the generations, you know, repeat. I think that what I really take away from my family story is that what we're fighting for, again, what we face, these big challenges, they're multi generational. There's no single generation that can tackle these alone or that bears it responsibly and or bears it, you know, the responsibility alone. And we have to bring our different perspectives and our different experiences and our different levels of energy and our different, you know, um, knowledge pieces to solve this problem. And so my father has been doing extraordinary work in the climate space and I learned a great deal from him. But I come at this as a physician who's had a long career in health system strengthening and working in multiple clinical settings and multiple system settings and, and, and bring that to bear in a way that I think I've been teaching him about the power and the impact of health, just like I've been learning from my colleagues around the world and other leaders and folks about what this moment needs. And um, I stand by what I said with my team, right? We all have a different, really important perspective that is going to shape this conversation. The question becomes, how do we really bring those forward in a way that can be productive, action-oriented, and and meet this moment with the urgency that it needs? And so um, I suppose what I bring forth from all my family, my children, my husband, my father, my grandmother, my mother, you know, everyone is, is just a deep belief that uh, we have to do better now today. And we have a responsibility to do that. And if we're not part of the solution, we're complicit with the problem. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Kerry, for reminding all Americans that we can do better in both the climate and in health uh, care. Uh, and for joining us to discuss this important topic. And thanks to our audience. Be sure to go online to chcradio.com to sign up for our email updates. You can also share your thoughts and comments about this program. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of conversations on healthcare or its affiliated entities. Join me, Mark Maselli, and co-host Margaret Flinner for the next Conversations on Healthcare on Federal News Network. We'll look at who's missing from the healthcare professions, specifically the underrepresentation of Latinas in nursing. Why aren't more Latinas going into nursing? We'll ask our guests who've written a compelling book featuring stories from 15 Latina nurses like themselves. Conversations on Healthcare on Federal News Network this Saturday and Sunday, 9.30 a.m.